Welcome back to Writers on Writing. I'm your host, Marie Stone. Today, I welcome back Anthony Mara to talk about his latest novel, Mercury Pictures Presents, out and available now and published by Hogarth, an imprint of Penguin Random House. Tony is the New York Times bestselling author of The Czar of Love and Techno and a Constellation of Vital Phenomenon, long listed for the National Book Award and winner of the National Book Critics Circle John Leonard Prize. He was on the show with me in 2015 with The Czar of Love and Techno. You can find that interview in our archives. Today, we talk about avoiding nostalgia in historical fiction, making every minor character a major character, writing a novel over a long period of time, how Tony structured the novel, and so much more. Before I bring him on, a quick reminder that we are now offering some great perks on Patreon. We started the page to keep in better touch with you and get your feedback, as well as offer some fun writing tips and tricks. You can see all the benefits by visiting www.patreon.com slash writers on writing. Any level of support helps us out if the show has boosted your writing in some way. If you've got some useful advice, this is an easy way to reach out to us. We appreciate it all. On with the show. Anthony Morrow, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So you were writing this book when we talked last time. You were living in Berlin. You were writing about Hollywood. Obama was president. Russia had not invaded Ukraine. There was no such thing as COVID. Democracy was sort of safe in the U.S. <laughs> what a change a few years makes. It's it's never a good sign when a, a novel set in the 1940s is topical again, is it? Well, that was going to be one of my questions is when you started this, and I think you started it well before 2015. I think you were sort of into it by the you know by the time we talked then. And so I'm just wondering, maybe we should get to this after we introduce the novel, but I'm just kind of wondering how much the influence of the outside world, all of that shifting beneath your feet sort of changed the trajectory of this, if at all. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm of the opinion that that historical novels often describe the periods in which they are written as much, if not more than the periods in which they are set. And so I guess maybe I'll, I'll give just a brief overview of what the, the book is about. It, it's set in the 1930s and 40s in Italy and Los Angeles. Frank Lloyd Wright once said that if you tip the world on its side, all the loose pieces will land in LA. And this was never more true than it was in the 1930s and 40s when thousands of refugees fleeing the war in Europe landed in LA, where many ended up finding work in the margins of Hollywood. And I decided to sort of explore this, this community of exiles and emigres through a particular character named Maria Lagana, who works as sort of a junior producer at Mercury Pictures, which is a struggling B-movie studio that becomes a hub for European refugees in this period. And one of the, the really eerie things that occurred when I was when I was working on this book is, is just seeing how much of the, the issues and the political divides that really drove large wedges through the culture and and through society in in the period of the of the novel really began to reemerge over the course of the Trump presidency and you know it it certainly influenced how I approached that history and how I, I looked at it. It's it's kind of, yeah, it was, it was certainly an eerie and in many ways uncomfortable writing experience. Well, it's interesting because when I sort of got to know your writing and your work, <laughs> I confess I sort of thought of you as a Russian writer and that's kind of the, the territory. And when you were writing about 
you know, the Tsar of Love and Techno and Constellation, these issues felt historical. And so when you moved to Hollywood, I have to confess, I was just a little bit surprised. I was like, oh, I thought I thought we were going to stay in the Russian territory. So talk a little bit about that, about moving outside of Russia and to, to Hollywood of all places, which I, I came to know as sunny Siberia through your book, <laughs> which I love. But yeah, talk about that move out of Russia and um, and into this new, like I said, Hollywood really came as a surprise to me. Yeah, after writing two two books set in in the former Soviet Union, I, I felt ready to to come in from the cold, and I felt weirdly that that Hollywood in this period was kind of a way to explore a lot of the themes and ideas that animated Constellation and, and most particularly Czar in, in a new context. One of the things that I think those two, my first two books were really animated by was the sense that within the Soviet Union, reality was kind of what the political forces governing society said it was. And the sort of slippery thin line between reality and, and fantasy is obviously quite present in, in Hollywood, and um, particularly during the years of World War II, when the Hollywood machinery was put in service of creating pop propaganda movies that, you know, served to boost morale at home and uh, in many ways define both what um, American values were and who our enemies were and sort of how America saw itself. So it felt like this really rich history and and a way of looking at the 1940s and at World War II from a, a slightly uh, a slightly different angle than I think that period is often approached from. I was particularly interested in in the experience of emigres who fled you know who fled Europe and and ended up in LA and ended up working on a lot of these propaganda movies and one of the real kind of moral paradoxes that they they found themselves facing is is the the fact that that as citizens of Axis countries, they were defined as enemy aliens and were prohibited from the very rights and freedoms that their movies championed. And this all just seemed like a really interesting look at at American uh, at this sort of slice of American history and and a way of kind of continuing down um, sort of the thematic roads that I you know had had found myself wandering during Constellation and Czar. Yeah, I was going to say there's so much essential. I'm calling it Maraness. You know, there's so many themes, despite the the very different geographical territory that that you can see. I mean, the sort of coloring. You know, a lot of historical novels color the past uh, with nostalgia, and I know you really work against that. And the way current political figures, you know, distort what has happened in the past, you really work against the photography. I've always been really interested in in your interest in photography that has shown up, I think, all over the place. And in this novel as well, the manipulation of historical photographs, how we view history through distorted lenses, uh, propagandas, art, all those themes just are all over your work. And I was wondering, as we're talking, and I realized we didn't really talk about this the last time, your own background growing up, I know you grew up in Bethesda and, and sort of had a circuitous route to to writing. But I'm wondering, you know, if there were early influences where some of these interests got laid down or how you came to find this this territory that your writing keeps exploring. 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. I I often wonder how well or how honestly writers can articulate their own preoccupations. I think in in some sense that the fiction itself becomes almost the way in which we try to try to comprehend what what interests us. But in terms of of some of those big, you know, thematic threads, you know, as as you said, I grew up in the Washington DC suburbs. Everybody I knew growing up had, you know, family that were either employed by the government or in in some some way um, tangentially affiliated with just, you know, the the major, you know, Washington D.C. industry. And so, like politics was was just sort of, you know, what my parents talked about over over dinner. It, it felt like um, just a, a really ingrained part of family life. And I think, you know, from from the the very beginning using fiction as a, a way of trying to understand these big, knotty, complex political crises, you know, that that everybody faces was always a goal that, that I had. And I think over the years, I found that transposing questions that and ideas and contradictions of, of the American political present into uh, into different contexts has been my way of, of addressing that. So Constellation, for instance, is, you know, um, set in Chechnya and set over the course of about 10 years of, of that conflict. But what animates it in, in many ways are conversations and elements of um, America's invasion of, of Iraq that occurred in the years uh, in which I was writing that book. And I think that by sort of recontextualizing some of those questions about empire, about um, you know the use of of torture as a political tool, the sort of moral and ethical compromises a country is willing to make in pursuit of victory, those those were all questions that you know characters confront in Constellation, but they were also questions that I think we were confronting in in America as well. So I think you know similarly with with Mercury Pictures Presents, I was interested in in looking at how you know some of of the big political divides of the present are not necessarily so unique to us in this moment. How there is this you know long divide in in American history, and you know looking at some of the, these big clashes of the late 1930s and early 1940s was a way of trying to sort of give our, our current moment a bit of deeper historical context. And, and lastly, I'll, I'll just finish with um, photography. And, and that one's a super easy one. My, my wife is a uh, art historian um, specializing in photography. We're always going to, to museums to look at photography. And, and it's interesting. So she, like her specialty is, is 19th century American photography. And over the years, she's, she's showed me all of these Civil War photographs that had been staged. And essentially, so many of the images that have come to you know, really represent in the historical, in the culture, our cultural memory, what the Civil War, you know, was really like, were in fact these uh, sort of staged tableaus. And so the idea of falsification being an essential part of photographic history, quite literally from, you know, from the invention of the medium is, is something that's always intrigued me. I love that. I was so taken by that in the czar, that whole idea of just erasing people off the map, both executing them and just making sure that, you know, there's no evidence of their life ever having been lived. I think 
It's, it's just such a fascinating thing. Yeah. There's something about, I think about for whatever reason that I find so compelling about photography in that it's, you can dramatize those larger, those larger questions about erasure and manipulation. It, it becomes a way of, of dramatizing it in, in a really concrete, visceral way. I, I think that that's part of what has drawn me to using photography in, you know, very various metaphoric ways over the course of several books. Well, and film in this book, I mean, the manipulation of things through film is even more this, this whole miniaturization of there's a miniaturized set and building these sets out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it, you know, it's what more relevant time in, in history to explore how we're being manipulated by what we think we see and what, what we're actually not seeing than this. And, and uh, so to, to understand the historical context of that, I think was, is really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it is this this really fascinating moment where you quite literally saw the creation of, of fake newsreels, you know, in, in part because there was no way to the the limitation, the limitations of camera technology at the time meant that you couldn't really shoot, you know, combat footage. And FDR was very concerned by the fact that, you know, moviegoers in America and, you know, the public at large at, at that time, you know, something like two thirds of the country um, went to the movie theater every week, that they were basically thought that that Hollywood entertainment war dramas um, were much more realistic than the actual newsreels that were being shown in front of those features. And so the Signal Corps and the Army Signal Corps began shooting these, these reenactments. And it sort of created this, this really fascinating, yeah, just, just this fascinating, complex enigma about whether or not these are, are accurate, whether or not the reenactments in some ways describe those experiences of, um, of war with greater verisimilitude than would, you know, what, what could have been captured by um, sort of the rudimentary newsreel cam cameras at the time in, in the moment. It's, it, it brings up, I think, like a, a host of, of sort of complicated questions that we continue to ask ourselves today as we sort of face, you know, this barrage of misinformation online and, you know, deep fakes and all the rest of that. It's getting worse every, yeah. every year. It seems to be getting worse. Yeah. No. So I know you you wrote this novel over the course of what what period of time? So I I was working on it for probably from 2014 to 2021, but I ended up really writing the bulk of it during the pandemic. Actually, I kind of had had struggled with this one much more than my previous books. In part, it was just the amount of research that uh, was involved. There were really just sort of this never-ending series of rabbit holes that I I could fall down, mm -hmm. and it, it wasn't really until COVID came and I was landlocked in a one-bedroom apartment with my with my spouse. And for years before that, I, I kind of dreaded facing the, the blank page every day. And as soon as I was sort of marooned in, in our apartment, you know, the, the blank page all of a sudden became this teleportation machine. I felt that, um, that I could transport myself on the page in a way that I craved to do in, you know, in, in real life. I, I really just sort of like threw myself into the book with a great deal of, of gusto at that point. And I found that not only was the world of the book beginning to feel much more developed and, and fleshed out at that point, but also the tone began to change a lot as well. You know, those were um, 
for obvious reasons, rather grim days. And I, I found that that I was trying to generate on, on the page something to counterbalance that. And so there, the, the tone of the book became a bit lighter. Um, I, I feel like like the the humor became more interesting, and every every couple of weeks I would you know print out what I what I'd had, and I would I would show it to to Cappy my my spouse, and you know I would go into one of the other I'd go into the other room um, so as to not try to decipher <laughs> her facial <laughs> expressions what she thought, and I remember uh, that one day I could hear her laughing through the wall, and <laughs> I was like okay I'm onto something, um, and that's kind of when I I felt like I was on finally on the right path. Yeah, lest we give the impression for people who haven't picked this up yet that it is either didactic with all of these, you know, big historical questions that are meaty and heavy and kind of dark or that it's yeah, it's a dark pandemic novel. It is not. It's very funny. It's very character driven. It never feels didactic. I mean, it's fully rooted in these people's story and there's, you know, love stories and, and uh, it's very cinematic. I mean, Mercury Pictures Presents is, is sort of a perfect entree to how full of color, you know, it just feels very colorized in my, in my brain, you know, sort of hyper colorized. And so to think that you wrote this during the pandemic in a, in a period of, you know, sort of isolation and, and, you know, relative national darkness is funny to me because it, it feels the exact opposite. But as, you, as you're talking about how that came to be, it, it certainly makes sense. So tell me a little bit about the point of entry, because if it started in 2015, it sounds like the tone changed. It sounds like the voice changed. Did that initial kernel, whatever that was, if it was this character, Maria, who's wonderful, or if it was some big idea, tell me, tell me what led you into this initially. And if that shifted over the course of time. Yeah. First, thank you. I, I absolutely adore Maria. She is um, this this tough, ambitious, um, irreverent striver. I, I sort of pictured her as Rosalind Russell's character in His Girl Friday, only a bit more salty and a lot more Italian. Um, the project sort of first kicked off. I used to live in LA. Um, my in-laws still have, live out there. Um, and this particular slice of of the city's history where you had this incredible cultural transfusion of all of these emigres landing in LA had always just just seemed like a fascinating milieu to set uh, a novel with it. At the same time, I was also throwing around an idea of something set in Southern Italy where my dad's um, side of the family originates from. And for, for months, I was sort of going back and forth between these, these two possible projects and was really unable to, uh, to settle on one or the other. And things finally came together when I took a trip to Lipari, which is a small island off the coast of Sicily, where my great-grandmother's family emigrated from. And it is absolutely gorgeous. It's one of a, a chain of tiny volcanic islands with you know sweeping vistas and spectacular beaches. And on one of um, my last days there, I noticed a little plaque that was on the wall of, uh, of the Lipari Citadel. And the plaque commemorated the anti-fascists and artists and intellectuals who had been exiled to Lipari by Mussolini. And I had never heard of this particular chapter in the island's history when it had been a destination for, for internal exiles. And it was hard to imagine that this island paradise to which I could trace my own roots had once been Mussolini's Alcatraz. And as I, I stood there, I recalled that 
that some German and Austrian emigres referred to Los Angeles as sunny Siberia. And it occurred to me that the same term might have easily been applied to Lipari as well. And I realized that the Los Angeles novel and the Italy novel weren't two separate books, but were rather halves of the same book. And that Mercury Pictures Presents would be the story of these two sunny Siberias on either end of the world and one family divided between them. And that was the moment when I first when I first kind of realized the the scope of the book and and kind of um, how I would anchor the, this cast of, of characters. That's a massive scope. And so I'm wondering how much you felt like you had to know and understand about the history of both of those sides of the apple before you could start writing. Because, you know, once once you determine, okay, I'm it's in the 1930s, and you might have gone into that knowing more than your average Joe, because you spent so much time researching it for other books. But but this is really a different side of the of the war. And so how much research did you feel like you had to do at the outset to sort of understand all of the balls in play here? Because there are so many balls in play. Yeah, it's it, it was definitely, um, <laughs> I definitely felt I bit off more than I could chew for, for a number of years. But I always write and research simultaneously. Um, ah, okay. That I I think that there's a risk of of researching you know for a couple of years and and not writing anything in in that I think it it takes the actual act of writing of you know composing the fiction to really figure out what research is important and and to to sort of direct you so in in a sense research is you know it's usually the thing that first initially inspires a work and it's something that I, I really carry out throughout the entire process and it, it ends up being the only part of the writing process to outlive the novel that once the the last copy edits are are in and it's off to the printer I'm, I'm usually still reading up on whatever the book was was about I think that you know oftentimes writers speak of research in archaeological terms that it's it's excavating or it's unearthing. But for me, research feels more like map making, where you are, you're trying to outline the, the dimensions of the world itself that you're dealing with. And every little interesting factoid or juicy anecdote or just wonderful, you know, bit of, of residue from the past that you stumble upon uh, becomes a little coordinate in your map. And so the process of composing the book then is actually trying to sort of figure out how, how you're getting from coordinate to coordinate in the most logical and dramatically interesting path. So, so research is to me less about finding, you know, interesting historical color. And it's, it's much more about how the book itself actually becomes structured. Just take a dip into your acknowledgement section and people can see the massive, and I'm sure that's probably not even all of it, the massive amounts of research that you did. So in terms of organizing that, I don't know if you have one of those brains that just remember everything when you see it, but you have read just massive amounts of books. And so just in terms of like what your office looks like and how you organize this and how you kept everything straight in your brain, because you have, you know, the, the world of the novel is is massive. And I should have counted up all how many characters are in here because they're all, we can talk about that in a minute, but they're, they're all wonderful. So you've got that world and then you've got the research world 
And I'm just wondering organizationally how you do this. If, if it's all in your computer, if you're, it's all in your brain, if it's all in post-it notes around your, <laughs> around your house. <laughs> it's, it's a big mess. Uh, no. So I like, sometimes um, people assume that my walls, like the walls of the office look like, you know, I'm an FBI agent on the, 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 the case of a serial killer or something. Um, and uh, it's it's not the case. It's it's relatively, you know, relatively well-ordered. But I tend to keep track of, of everything either in my head or on my on my phone on the, the notes application. I take a lot of notes. And, and kind of one of the, the things that I love most about working on a book is the way it just, it keeps you more alert to the world in general, that I find myself when I'm working on a project, you know, just stray conversations. It, it really could be anything, like the entire world becomes, you're, you're sort of mining it for fictional, you know, purposes. One example of that would, would be, we went to a museum a couple years ago in Salem, Massachusetts called the Peabody Essex. And it is a, a museum, like, I believe it, it was founded by like Massachusetts whalers or something. It's, and, and so it has like a lot of, you know, maritime artwork. And one of the, uh, the paintings we saw was of a ship that was in the 19th century had, was setting sail from Massachusetts and was sailing to India. And it, inside, you know, it, its cargo were these massive chunks of ice from, I believe it was um, the Great Lakes. And this ice was being shipped to the other side of the world. And that ended up being just this tiny little detail that sort of lodged in my mind. And later I used it in, in different circumstances in the book, uh, where it becomes a block of ice being sent across, across America on, on a train, which comes to have this sort of great emotional importance for one of the characters in, in Mercury. So something like that, you know, I jotted it down in, in my notes app. And there's something about the act of, of jotting down a note kind of relieves me of the need ever to read it, that that's sort of the important ones I, I remember. So I almost never go back and look at my notes, but but something in the act of, of writing them down really keeps the the important ones lodged in my mind. But I, I, I tend not to, one of the things about like working on a, a project over the course of many years is that what might seem at first to be like an overwhelming amount of information or just like a lot of balls that you're you're juggling if you live with it day in and day out after weeks and months and years it it just kind of becomes it becomes normal to you um it becomes kind of just your inhabited reality and so the the fact that you know the book transformed so much over such a, a long period of time the the fact that you know I, I was working on this for around eight years meant that it actually didn't feel like too much information at all to kind of you know keep in your in your mind well another advantage of working through the pandemic because you don't have a lot of external noise to get in your brain during the intense writing. So the, yeah, that was probably a help. We'll be back with more from Anthony Mara and Mercury Pictures Presents in a moment. You're listening to Writers on Writing. Another quick reminder to check out our Patreon page. If you're liking the show, if you've learned any tips or maybe inched your way closer to publication, whatever it is, in return, you'll get weekly writing tips and prompts and some other goodies visit www.patreon.com slash writers on writing by becoming a backer for just a few bucks a month. There are uh, a lot of perks up there. Let's get back to it with Tony Mara talking about Mercury Pictures Presents. 
Let's talk about the structure because you had mentioned, you know, these research sort of being these points on a map. I love that image. And so the structure of the book is broken down kind of into two big essential parts. And then it's subparts and then it's chapters within those subparts. <laughs> and so, you know, when I when I start to think about the container of a novel, it needs to be contained by time. It needs to be contained by characters. I mean, a novel like this could really spin off, as you say, into a lot of different rabbit holes that that would take you sort of off track. So I wonder if we can just talk a little bit about how you decided to structure it, how you decided sort of what the the container of it would be if you felt like you had to impose time constraints on yourself to give yourself, you know, sort of a, a beginning and ending point in, in history and kind of how, you know, how the, the big picture structural organization worked for you. Yeah, absolutely. It, it gave me quite a lot of agita, just, just figuring out how to corral all of these different characters and their storylines and their, their histories and, and all of that. And so what I, what I sort of came up upon was um was as you said sort of like these two the the novel is divided not quite in that quite halfway through i think it's it's probably like two-fifths and and three-fifths mm -hmm. um there, thereabouts and for the first section i decided that like the the front story was basically going to take place over the course of the day uh, of, of a single day and that um within that day i would have license to to move back in time and, and sort of give these sort of sweeping overviews of various characters' backstories uh, as a way of kind of giving all the necessary contextual information. And once I got to the, the end of that day, uh, I think it's around page, I don't know, one, 170 or 180. From that point on, we would be moving. Uh, the second part of the book would take place over the course of, of roughly a year, and that would move in more or less chronological order. So I kind of liked the idea of, yeah, of, of, of sort of using using a single day as, as a container in which I could funnel in sort of decades of backstory and then in the second half sort of moving in a more, more linear, orderly fashion. But that I hear is not how you wrote it. I hear that you sort of jump around and uh, do different sections at different times, which also <laughs> sounds like a headache. Uh, oh, I talked yeah. to writers who do both ways, but that sounds hard. No, no. So yeah, I th th that was that was sort of like the order I imposed. Uh, I had to impose on things at the at the very end. But yeah, as as I was as I was actually composing it, it was, it was just just sort of a lot of a lot of pages. Uh, it's it sort of sometimes, oftentimes, I, they wouldn't even be complete scenes. It, they would just be paragraphs um, that I was trying to to sort of knit together down the line. I think that that one of the most important aspects of writing, at, at least for me, is to feel excited about the work at hand. And so I have a tendency, if if I ever, if I ever, I'm always, um, when I am, you know, a bit stuck or a bit bogged down, I'll, I'll just move to a different section. And that's a way that I feel like I'm able to maintain a sort of narrative momentum. I think that that just getting to the end of like your first draft is so important in the the life of a book that it can be so easy, you know, just to, to get waylaid and, and distracted. And you spend, you know, six months trying to solve one chapter and whatever, whatever the animating inspiration of the book, whatever that hold it once had on you suddenly is no longer there. 
then you kind of lose whatever um, excitement you had for the project in the first place. So, so as as I was working, I would often um, skip around, sort of trying to go where you know where the flame was the hottest, I suppose. And is this all in the same Word document where you just put put everything together and then kind of move it around later? Because I, I have friends who work in this in this way. And then they end up with a stack of, you know, 800 fragments that are laid out on their floor. And they're <laughs> so I have, no, no I, I, I do not do it in a, a single document. That would be, I, I am very impressed and feel uh, great pity for your, <laughs> your friends who do that. That, um, <laughs> that sounds like quite a, quite a labor. Um, no, so I, I usually divide things. Often it'll be by character where, you know, I might have one document for Maria. Um, sometimes it'll be, sometimes I'll have a rough sense of what the dramatic, what sort of like the dramatic unit is that I'm, I'm dealing with, whether it's a single, a single scene or a series of scenes that sort of are being stitched together into to a single chapter. So yeah, I'll, I'll usually, in terms of, of drafting, we'll break it into separate documents. But I have, I have the terrible habit of when I'm doing that and, you know, I'll usually write the same um, the same chapter several different times. I just title each one. It'll be, you know, chapter five, new, chapter five, new. This is really the new one. Chapter five, <laughs> new, new, new. No, seriously, this is the new one. So it's, it, it becomes a bit tricky at the end of, of everything to figure out what is actually the, the, the final one. I have heard that when you get stuck, maybe we talked about this last time, I can't remember, but when you get stuck, you retype, you, you start do, yeah. retype. Yeah, I think that's, that's a clever way to at least immerse yourself back in maybe what the magic was and to figure out what the chaff was and what the great stuff was and Exactly. Yeah. And and I think it also has, well, I mean, like the prime benefit is it makes you feel productive when, <laughs> when you're uh, <laughs> right. feeling a bit lazy. But it, it also has the, the benefit of forcing you to read your work at, at, at a much more glacial pace than you otherwise would. And I think that that oftentimes we as writers maybe overlook the value of, of reading our work slowly. And just the ways that that retyping forces you to to really justify every single word. You know, you're you're literally feeling it in your fingers. And I think that the the tone of of a chapter, the tone of a book, changes over the course of re rewriting it in um, retyping it in ways that are are often more subtle and perhaps more natural than changes that would be imposed you know, from above by a red pen. Um, so, so when I'm editing a, a book, I, I never use, I never mark it up. I, I only retype it. Um, I, I feel like that's where the most natural and the most sort of interesting revisions arise from. You must have gone through a lot of keyboards <laughs> retyping this book because <laughs> yeah. I know you didn't just revise it once. I mean, it feels so so very polished and revised. <laughs> <laughs> it was, yeah, it was... Uh, my, my my fingers are uh, were quite sore by the end. Right, right. Well, let's dive into these characters. I should have made a character map for myself of how many characters there were. And I should also mention, I both listened to the book and read the book. And first of all, your narrator is great. I don't know if you've listened to your audiobook, but she's wonderful. And it's such a different experience, I think, to listen to a book versus reading it and how much audiobooks have really changed the terrain of experiencing a novel. I mean, the, the book is so cinematic and when you're getting sort of this dramatic reading of this this woman with all of the different character voices and everything, it 
it adds that that cinematic touch that you know we probably didn't have 25 years ago when before the the age of audiobooks whenever they came about but uh, I yeah. don't know if you if you think about that when you're writing at all I, I don't really think about so, so you uh, so I only sort of um, learn who the narrator will be um, quite late you, you know after the after the book is entirely finished but I I do find that I mean I listen to a ton of, of audiobooks I I go to sleep every night listening to one there's something about the experience of being lulled to sleep by having a story sort of poured into your ear it it, it brings me back to you know to, to when I was a kid and um, you know my mom would read would read me a story before bed there's um, there's something about the experience of of having a story read to you that I think is is so primal yeah. and I'm I'm thrilled that we're now able to experience probably most uh most new novels via uh via audio as well as physical. That's the problem is I kept going to sleep. Usually I I then fall asleep listening to books, but your book had me up many times till three in the morning. I'm like, what happens next? <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm, I'm thrilled to hear it. Yeah. So let's dive into these characters. So I don't know if you know how many there are. There's there's a lot and they all, and maybe we talked about this before too, that none of them feel minor. You know, I always ask writers about how much information they know about their minor characters. And I'm like, Tony doesn't have any minor characters. They're all, they all are kind of the star of their own show. So first of all, how many, do you know how many there are? I I don't. Um, I don't either. There's so I, many. Yeah, there there is certainly more than a handful. But yeah, I exactly as you said, I, I love the idea of writing novels that don't have minor characters. I think that there's something that to me seems so beautiful about giving every character, no matter how peripheral, their their moment in the spotlight. Um, and it was particularly, you know, th- th- that's obviously um, in in Constellation and and Zara. That was something I tried to do and. In, in this book, in an environment where you quite literally have bit players, it, it became even more fun to sort of play around with um, the idea of, of, you know, who is a, a major and minor character? How do we define um, a character's importance and the sort of roving omniscience that I, I find I'm unable to, to break away from is certainly a, a good way of, of getting to that. I know you said Maria reminded you of Girl Friday. I, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen the movie that she that she was plucked from, but but I'm wondering if that is a little bit how you start with characters. If somebody is sort of reminiscent of someone in the real world, and you you kind of have that nugget, and you write around them, you know, Artie, uh, we meet him on page one, and he's got you know this series of two pays in the corner, so he's so very visual immediately. So tell me a little bit about taking that first embryonic sperm and egg come together as a character in your head and then how they how they flesh out into entire human beings if you've got you know sort of pictures of them in your head or or actually literally in the world or kind of how that process unfolds yeah it's it's really dependent on the particular character um so so Artie and and his brother Ned uh who who run Mercury Pictures they're this sort of uh very these two brothers with a, a very tumultuous relationship they they're loosely based on Jack and Harry Warner who also had uh, a similar a similarly fraught relationship they they also used their their movies for um, political ends and sort of had a, a very tragic relationship in terms of of how the business really exacerbated the tensions between them other characters such as Maria's aunts 
uh, Mimi Lala and Pep, her, her great aunts, are, are these wonderfully fatalistic elderly um, Italian widows. And they are, they're, they're inspired by, by my own aunts, uh, my own great aunts, um, who are, are also named Mimi Lala and Pep. And they uh, had a similarly bleak, <laughs> but, 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 but very, very sort of darkly humorous um, worldview. Like, you know, when I was a little kid, they would, they would say, uh, you poor, poor child, you have your whole life ahead of you. And so in, in, in those respects, certain, certain characters, you know, were, were more or less drawn out of my own family. Um, so, so I, I feel like there's no, no real hard or fast rule in, in terms of, of how characters begin to emerge. You know, some of them, for instance, some of the, the bit players, um, there, there are these two characters named Harold and Gerald who uh, dream, they, they, they hold the unofficial world record for uh, being killed off in the most numbers of movies in, in Hollywood history they dream of of making it to the you know to the final reel and they emerge from this quote that i i read in a book called picture by i can't remember the name of the author she was a, a writer who did a number of profiles in the new yorker and she wrote a book, a series of, it was, I think, five New Yorker articles um, that were published together in a book called Picture about the adaptation of The Red Badge of Courage by John Houston. Mm -hmm. And she has just this one throwaway line from a an, an extra in the, I, I can't remember if, if the extra was, was on the Union or Confederate side, but this extra is, was just talking about all of the different wars he had participated in as an extra. And that ended up sort of inspiring these two, you know, these two bit players in my book. So it's, it's kind of, um, I would say, I would say almost always there's some, something in the real world, some, whether it's somebody in my own life or, you know, historical figures, or just sort of the slight glancing encounter you have with, with some figure from from the past, uh, I would say that they're all rooted in some way in reality. And there'd be a tendency, I think, for certainly for new writers, for some of these characters to turn into caricatures. I mean, once we see a toupee, we, you know, it just triggers all this cliche stuff in our heads. And obviously, these are never that. And I was wondering if you ever had to fight against that, you know, of, because you you can never make fun of your characters, right? I mean, you have to be in their on their side. But they're also very funny and they're also very caricaturistic sometimes. But I was wondering if that's ever something that you have to consciously think about. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question, particularly in a book that has, you know, quite a number of pages set in in Hollywood. One of the the things that I was fascinated with was kind of playing around with types that there is kind of a, a theme running through the the novel is is the way um, in which Hollywood perpetuates stereotypes and this is most most notable with a character named Eddie Lou who is Maria's uh, significant other and he is cast as he's 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 this very talented actor. And he's he's kind of the only character in the book who who is genuinely talented. Um, everybody else are you know kind of hacks of of one degree or another. <laughs> um, but he is Chinese American. He his family has lived in L.A. for you know nearly eighty years. And despite this, because of the 
racial typecasting that was so prevalent in Hollywood at the time and in many ways continues through today. Eddie is as much of an outsider on Mercury pictures on, on their backlots as any of the emigres or exiles he works with. And when the U.S. enters the war, Eddie finally gets his his sort of big break, but it's it's as playing Japanese villains. And this question of what obligations we have to the characters we portray is, is something that he really uh, struggles with. And he, in many ways, voices my own kind of concerns about, you know, typecasting or relying too heavily on, on types. And so, so in, in a lot of ways throughout the book, I tried to sort of subtly subvert what a lot of these um, types might be. For instance, you know, Artie is, as you said, he's, he's first presented as in, in a manner that perhaps um, this sort of over the top, a bit bombastic, which at first glance seems like maybe the sort of caricature that, you know, we often see of Hollywood producers during this period. And yet over the course of, of the novel, I, I think he, he becomes much more complicated and we see how, how his persona, um, how the toupees, how all of this are in fact his way of trying to live up to the, um, the perceptions that waspy America has of a producer and by doing so trying to um, kind of leverage what little bargaining power he has um, in negotiations with bankers and, and all of that. Artie has intuited the fact that um, no one is more of an actor than producers behind the scenes and self-consciously styles himself in a manner to uh, kind of get the most as he as as he can out of his business competitors and and bankers and all of that. So there are definitely the ways in which I was looking at sort of these these character types. Um, I was always like looking for ways that that those types could both be examined and and then subverted. Who gave you the most difficulty? The most difficulty. Well, so. I don't know what this says about me, but Artie was by far and away the easiest character to write. <laughs> he just sort of came off the page. Uh, the, the character that gave me the most difficulty, I would actually say, is Vincent, who is a, a character who... So, so Maria um, emigrates from Italy as a child after a, a childhood transgression results in her father's arrest and imprisonment in one of these internal exile um, settlements in southern Italy. And uh, her father ends up moving in with this family in which this, this young man, um, whom we come to know as Vincent, is a member of. And he ends up, Vincent ends up um, leaving Italy and, and coming to uh, coming to LA in 1941. And he was was a character that was always just really, really tricky to write because he has uh, a number of secrets and, and he is hiding a number of things from a number of people. And the ways in which that changes how you approach a character and what they notice what's on their mind when they are, you know, having a conversation with somebody who they're trying to keep in the dark. That gave me a bit of a bit of trouble. That strikes me as one of those places where you as the writer are discovering so many things in the writing process that then you'd have to go back and massage. In Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. He was he was a character where it that that's so true that so many things throughout the novel that occur to him or 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 that he keeps hidden then 
you sort of have to um, work your way backwards and see how that that kind of backfills um, every other relationship a character like that has. I don't know when the cultural appropriation issue came into the sort of consciousness of writers. I can't remember when we started talking about that, but I feel like it was after you may have started writing this. And I wondered if that gave you any pause with Eddie, if it was ever difficult to sort of navigate around those issues of who has the right to tell whose story and, you know, all those, all those things that felt very hot in the last five or six years that we've been talking about and, and kind of your thoughts on that. Yeah, it, it certainly was something that I, I had in the forefront of my mind that the history of of Asian Americans in in Hollywood and the way they've been misrepresented on screen is, is heinous and certainly not something that I would want to replicate um, in in the novel at all. As as I was working on the the book, one thing that I really felt strongly about is that I couldn't write about wartime Los Angeles without writing about the internment of Japanese Americans in that period, and I felt that. You know, that for obvious reasons, I, I'm not the best person to tell that particular story. But one story that I felt like I could perhaps tell was the ways in which Hollywood actively participated in justifying that internment program. And that sort of became a way that that was sort of what initially got me thinking about a character like Eddie Lou, because there were you know so many movies um, in that period in which on, on the one hand, uh, Hollywood is, you know, fighting the Nazis and standing up for freedom and, you know, justice and, and all of this. And on the other hand, they're, they're making movies that quite severely and, and cruelly with just a, a profound sense of, of hypocrisy seek to, to justify the, the internment of U.S. citizens. Um, and that kind of became the way that, that I tried to, um, to approach sort of many of the conundrums that Eddie finds himself um, dealing with. Also, because the the novel does have such a, a broad cast of characters, it, it, it felt that it would be just really, it, it just wouldn't feel true to life if everybody was, you know, an Italian American. So it, it felt like, like, because I was looking at, you know, this, this broad swath of, um, of Hollywood and Los Angeles history that, um, for it to have any sense of realism, it needed to include um, a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds. I, I didn't think of it in the context of this novel that much, except that I heard an interview you did where it came up and I thought, oh, I, you know, I'm, I, I always just love to get major writers take on that issue today and where they stand on it, because I think, you know, it does percolate in people's minds of what stories are on the palette and what, what, what aren't. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's a, a very naughty um, and and complicated, um, you know, both ethical and artistic um, consideration for for writers to make, and and I think everybody has, you know, falls at at a different point in in the spectrum of of what you know they're comfortable with, what they feel they um, they can do. Oh, we're drawing down on our time. One thing I wanted to make sure we got in there is a, another helpful tip that I have heard you talk about for writers is just the power of curiosity, and that most of your notes that you take on your novel. I heard you say are, are more questions rather than declaratory statements. And I think that's really useful for writers to hear that they should be, you know, questioning 
more than answering in their in their notes to themselves. And though that will open up more avenues and doors for for exploration in the novel, because that that's really what novels are trying to do is is answer some big essential questions that hopefully the writer doesn't know the answer to when they when they set out. I don't know if there's anything more you you want to say about that. Yeah, no, I I, I think you know thinking back at you know my my notepad on my phone, uh, I couldn't even tell you how many um, how many um, pages that would all be if if I printed them out. But every single one of those notes is a question, um, and I find that that really um, the entry point into anything interesting. Um, on the page for me is a question. And I don't think that that the work itself even needs to answer those questions as much as give fuller articulation of, you know, the mystery that that they are um, that they're concerned with. I think that um, that curiosity, you know, much more than than any other attribute is um, is the most important thing that uh, a writer can learn to cultivate. That um, one of the the things that you know that I love most about about writing is that it it kind of gives you the excuse to be um, a little amateur expert on whatever subject you're you're most curious about. And the great thing about about curiosity, I think, is that um, if you cultivate it, if you um, you know uh, respect and and try to uh, encourage your your sense of curiosity, you you never run out of material. That it, the world kind of becomes um, your playground. I love that. Other advice that we didn't cover in the hour that you you find particularly useful for writers. I mean, I think that that this is more general ad- ad- advice um I, I i guess for yeah i, I guess for 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 in, anyone sort of at any stage of writing but but it, w- it would be you know just to read everything i think that you know this is pretty obvious advice but but anything you can get your hands on i, I feel like you can learn as much from you know from a uh a supermarket um you know mass market paperback as you can from um from a, a fancy literary novel that so much of of what being a writer is i think is is cultivating a sense of of what's important to you as a reader and um trying to understand the relationship between what animates you in your reading life and what you want to create in your writing life i know you're a big fan of zadie smith I am. Lee child yeah <laughs> both of them i mean they're my two right. uh <laughs> Love that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No, I I, I think um I, I think and I I've learned so much from them both. Yeah. And I know you're a proponent of the thousand word a day, get the words down on the page. So all of the all of these things are useful for writers to hear that it's one foot in front of the other for all of us. So that's uh that's great. I can't tell you how much I enjoy talking to you. This is wonderful. Thank you so much. I, I hope it won't be uh, quite as long uh, a gap between uh, <laughs> between this and our next talk. Me too. And tell tell us where we can find you. Um, there should be uh, anthonymara.com. Yeah. So you've got a ton of events. I saw them up on the Penguin website. You've got a, you've still got more to come. I know there were a lot last month. And there's a handful of virtual events that if people miss them the first time, they can they can still log into them now. So there's there's a lot of ways people can find you. Exactly. Yeah. And um, please feel free to um, to shoot me a note at Tony at AnthonyMara.com um, and, and say hello. Well, we'll do this again and I can't wait for it. All right. Looking forward to it too. Thank you so much for having me.
That was Anthony Mara. The book is Mercury Pictures Presents. It's out and available now and published by Hogarth. In addition to our Patreon page, you can also visit our websites. Barbara's is barbarademarcobera.com or penonfire.com. Mine is mariestone.com, two hours in Marie. You can always subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Amazon, and Spotify. As always, our fantastic music and sound design is provided by Travis Barrett. You can find him at travisbarrett.mikejabi.com. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week, and thanks so much for joining me. Have a great day. Bye.